The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Let's pray together. Lord, you indeed are a God like no other. There's no one like you, Lord. No one holy the way you're holy. No one sovereign as you're sovereign. No one who loves the way that you love or as wise as you're wise. Merciful as you're merciful, Lord. In every way, you are infinitely beyond any other and just beyond what our simple minds can comprehend. And yet, Lord, we do give you praise and worship. Though we can't know you fully, we can know you truly. And that's why we worship, Lord. We, and we pray that as we look at your word today, that you would speak, that you would move, that you would work in our hearts and cause your word to find a place there to reside in our hearts, to, to be with us throughout the week, Lord. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. I've got some sermon notes. I've got some things I plan on saying. But Lord, really, we just want to hear from you, Lord. So would you speak? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, typically our pattern is to preach passage by passage through books of the Bible, as most of you know, uh, an approach that's often called expository preaching. Uh, but as Noah mentioned, this Sunday we're actually concluding a five-week series of sermons that are more topical in nature, going through what are often referred to as the five solas of the Protestant Reformation, uh, sola being the Latin term for only. And even though all of these solas are foundational gospel truths that are central to what we really teach every week, uh, the reason why we thought it'd be cool for us to do this series of sermons is that this is actually the 500th anniversary of a very important event in the Protestant Reformation known as the Diet of Worms. Uh, essentially the trial of Martin Luther in the year 1521. And so this morning, we arrive at the fifth and final sola, which is soli deo gloria, uh, Latin for to the glory of God alone. And, you know, one of the key things that seems to be lacking in our society is a sense of purpose. And to be more specific, a sense of transcendent purpose. A reason for living that's bigger than just yourself or even bigger than anything in this world. And it's kind of sad, actually, to think about how many people in our society go through their entire lives without this sense of transcendent purpose or even many of the foundational beliefs that could give rise to that kind of purpose. Because according to a secular worldview, the only reason this universe even exists 
is because a bunch of molecules randomly came together and interacted with one another in order to produce the world as we know it. That means our existence is purely accidental. And so, as Shakespeare so famously wrote, life really does become a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Life is ultimately meaningless if you take secular beliefs to their logical conclusion. Now, some people, many people even, might try to manufacture an artificial sense of meaning and purpose for their lives. But at the end of the day, it's pretty hard, and I would say downright impossible to escape the conclusion that we're all just rearranging molecules that were already randomly arranged to begin with. Uh, you might think of it like this. Imagine that you were sent to a forced labor camp for the rest of your life. And at this camp, they gave you a shovel and made you shovel dirt all day, every day. And to make matters even worse, you weren't even accomplishing anything with all of your work. You were literally just moving a pile of dirt from point A to point B. And then when it all got to point B, you had to move it all back to point A once again. And you had to continue doing that endlessly, moving dirt back and forth for no reason at all, all day, every day, for the rest of your life. I mean, what a meaningless and empty and miserable experience and life that would be, right? Yet if you embrace secular assumptions about the universe, that's essentially all you're left with. You're just rearranging molecules that were already randomly arranged to begin with. And that's, that's pretty sad. Yet the Bible teaches us that we can, in fact, live with a sense of rich and satisfying and transcendent purpose. And unlike the secularist, we don't have to try to manufacture that purpose in spite of our beliefs. Rather, it's our beliefs themselves that give rise to this purpose. And so what is the purpose that we have? Why do we exist? Why are we here? Well, the biblical teaching of Soli Deo Gloria answers that question. Uh, it reminds us that we exist for the glory of God. And indeed, that this entire universe exists for the glory of God. And this sola really is the culmination of the other four. Uh, the first sola, sola scriptura, or scripture alone, is the foundation of the solas. It points us to the Bible as the ultimate and authoritative source of our beliefs. And then as we read the Bible, we discover that we have a really big problem, namely that we're sinful 
and therefore alienated from God and even destined for eternal judgment. That's the bad news. Yet the good news, according to the Bible, is that God's acted in a decisive way to save us from our sin. And the way He does that, the way He justifies us in His sight, is first of all, through faith alone. Sola fide. We're not justified by religious observances or good works or anything else like that, but rather through faith alone. Also, going along with that, we're saved by God's grace alone. Sola gratia. It's not by our efforts or even by some combination of God's grace plus our efforts, but rather by God's grace alone that we're saved. And this salvation comes to us through the mediating work of Christ alone. Solus Christus. Jesus came to this earth as a human being and lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilling God's righteous standards completely. And then he died on the cross, of course, to take the punishment that you and I deserve to suffer because of our sins. He was the atoning sacrifice who redeemed us. And then after that, he resurrected from the dead in victory and triumph in order to win the decisive victory over sin and death. And so that's how God rescues us from our sin. Through faith alone, sola fide, by grace alone, sola gratia, and according to the mediating work of Christ alone, solus Christus. And the result of all of these truths is that God gets all the glory for our salvation. He gets 100% of the credit. And that's how we arrive at soli Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And more than that, I would say that's the only way we can arrive at soli Deo Gloria. You see, any denial of any of the other solas ultimately necessitates a denial of this sola. And so, for example, the Roman Catholic Church might say that they believe in the glory of God alone, but their denial of each of the other solas totally undermines that belief. For example, their denial of sola scriptura by viewing human ideas and traditions as authoritative undermines God's glory. Their denial of sola fide by requiring human effort and works for justification undermines God's glory. Their denial of sola gratia by teaching a form of salvation by human merit undermines God's glory. And their denial of solus Christus by teaching that the church has a role and that priests have a role and that Mary has a role in our salvation undermines God's glory. And so even if the Roman Catholic Church claims to believe in the glory of God alone, well, their denial of each of the other solas undermines that belief and actually has the effect of robbing God of His glory. 
And by the way, the reason I'm bringing up the Roman Catholic Church isn't, uh, it's simply the historical context in which these five solas were developed. Um, these were all developed back in the 1500s, specifically as a response to Roman Catholic teachings. And so in order to understand these solas, you really have to understand Roman Catholicism and, and what they teach. And uh, so in summary, Soli Deo Gloria is the climactic culmination of the other four solas. And this is clear not only from logical deduction, as we've been doing, but from Scripture itself. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 states, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Here it is. So that no one may boast. So the result of the fact that we're saved by grace alone and through faith alone is what? That no one may boast, right? And no one can make the boastful claim that they contributed anything to their salvation. Instead, it's God who gets all the glory. Romans 3.27 teaches the very same thing. After Paul talks about being justified in God's sight as a gift and about, and about us receiving this gift simply through faith, Paul then asks, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, he writes. Now, theoretically, if our own efforts had earned us a right standing with God, we'd have something to boast about. We could proudly claim that our own efforts got us to the way where we are. But the Bible's very clear that you and I, and we are so far gone spiritually, so Sinful, so hopelessly enslaved in our sin that there is no way we could ever achieve for ourselves a right standing before God. Instead, God grants us a right standing with Him as a free gift through Jesus to be received simply by grace and through faith. And as a result, God gets 100% of the credit for our salvation. It's kind of like when someone donates an organ to another person. Now, let's say that you have kidney disease and that you are going to die very soon unless someone gives you a healthy kidney. Now, fortunately for you, you have some pretty good friends. And so one of your friends generously decides to give you one of their kidneys. So you both go to the hospital and the doctors there are able to remove one of your friend's kidneys and give that kidney to you. Now, obviously, in that situation, you wouldn't have any grounds for boasting, would you? I mean, if you went around after that and you started boasting about having received this kidney, I mean, people are gonna think you're ridiculous. And you would be ridiculous because what, what grounds could you possibly have for boasting about that. I mean, you didn't provide the kidney. You didn't perform the operation. You didn't contribute anything. And that's the way it is with our salvation. 
I mean, that's why both Ephesians 2.9 and Romans 3.27, as well as several other verses in the New Testament, teach us that boasting is excluded. And of course, that's just another way of saying that God gets all the glory. And this fits right in with a theme that's actually rather pervasive in Scripture. Uh, it's hard to read uh, virtually any portion of the Bible without encountering the idea that God's glory is central to everything. It begins with creation. God created this world for the display of His glory. Psalm 19.1 states that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And not only did God create nature for His glory, He created humans in particular for His glory. He states in Isaiah 43, 6 and 7, I will say to the earth, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, here it is, whom I created for my glory. Then in Exodus, we see that this applies even to the most powerful people in the world. God says to Pharaoh in Exodus 9, 16, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And this fits right in with what the psalmist identifies as God's purpose for saving the Israelites from their Egyptian captivity. He states in Psalm 106.8 that God saved them for His name's sake that He might make known His mighty power. And indeed, all of the things that God does to take care of His people are ultimately done for His own glory. We see this stated in the famous words of Psalm 23, 1-3. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. Why? Why does he do all these things to take care of us and to provide for us? For his name's sake. Then once the Israelites are in the land that God brings them to, he reminds them. In Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Unfortunately, though, the Israelites end up rebelling against God, resulting in Him sending the surrounding nations to conquer them and carry them off into exile. And yet, God tells them through the prophet Ezekiel that He's going to rescue them from their exile. However, listen to why. God says he's going to rescue them. Ezekiel 36, 22 through 23. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profane, profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord who declares the Lord God when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Then in the New Testament, God's people still need saving. Not 
from their literal exile, but from their sin, which is actually what they really needed saving from the whole time. And yet God still has the very same motive for rescuing them. We see this in Ephesians 1, 11 and 12. In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined you know, for salvation, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that, purpose statement, we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In fact, that phrase, to the praise of his glory, occurs not just once, but three times in Ephesians chapter 1. Three times Paul emphasizes that all of this is for the ultimate goal of the glory of God. And Paul's not alone in that. Peter joins him in teaching this very same truth. In 1 Peter 2.9, he says to his readers, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that, here, another purpose statement, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And friends, this is just a small sample. We're just scratching the surface here of verses in the Bible that hold up God's glory as his central purpose in all things. And yet hopefully this brief smattering of verses is enough to illustrate that the glory of God really is the very heartbeat of the Bible. As far as God's concerned, there is one grand purpose that rises above everything else and that encompasses everything else. And that is his own glory. And by the way, on a personal note, let me just say, this is why I love Reformed theology so much. It makes much of God. You know, it, it's radically God-centered in a way that does justice to this pervasive biblical theme on God's glory. Now, perhaps all of this is uh, making some of you wonder whether it's selfish for God to be this way and to pursue his own glory the way he does. I mean, after all, if we encounter a person who pursues their own glory in this kind of way, yeah, we probably wouldn't have a very high opinion of them, right? And so should we think less of God for being this way? Is it selfish for God to be so wrapped up in his own glory? And that's a question that's, I believe, addressed masterfully in John Piper's book, Desiring God. It's not really possible to unpack the whole answer in just a few minutes, but the gist of it is that God's passion for his own glory is actually in perfect harmony with his love for us. You see, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That's the way Piper phrases it. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So God's pursuit of glory for himself is 
inextricably bound up in us being satisfied in Him. And so He actively pursues our satisfaction in Him by loving us and redeeming us and bringing us into a relationship with Himself for all eternity. And there is no greater joy in the universe for us than to be recipients of that. God Himself is the source of all joy. And so you and I experience maximum joy by being redeemed into a relationship with Him. So if you think about it, it would actually be a terribly unloving thing for God not to be about His own glory. If God weren't zealous for His glory, that would translate into Him also having a lack of zeal for our joy as well. So that's the reason why it's not selfish in the way we would typically use that word for God to be passionate about glorifying Himself. That's actually the most loving way for Him to be. And I know this is kind of abstract, so let me give a, an illustration here. Not a perfect one, but maybe one that'll help you. Uh, it, it'll be kind of like the, it would be kind of like the sun, if the sun had a personality, desiring to glorify itself by shining its light throughout the whole solar system, and particularly on Earth, so that creatures here on Earth could see and marvel at and enjoy its light. So let's say that was the desire of the sun, to see creatures on earth benefiting in various ways from its light. Now, of course, that would be a very self-exalting thing for the sun to do, since it would be, after all, displaying its own splendor and glory. But it would also, at the very same time, be a very loving thing for the sun to do since it would be intentionally seeking our enjoyment of its glory and our benefit from the light and heat it provides. So like I said, that's not a perfect illustration, but hopefully it's at least a helpful one. John Piper writes, God is the one being in all the universe for whom seeking his own praise is the ultimately loving act. For him... Self-exaltation is the highest virtue. When he does all things for the praise of his glory, that's a Ephesians 1 quotation, of course, he preserves for us and offers to us the only thing in all the world that can satisfy our longings. God is for us. And the function of this love is that God has been, is now, and always will be for himself. So hopefully you can see how Soli Deo Gloria is one of the most wonderful and precious truths in the entire Bible. And hopefully you want it to be the pattern not only of the Bible, but of your life. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, we are told... So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory 
of God. So not only is the Bible radically God-centered, it calls us to be radically God-centered as well. And notice that word all. Do all to the glory of God. That includes engaging in our jobs to the glory of God. It includes relating to our spouse, if we have one, to the glory of God. It includes raising our children, if we have them, to the glory of God. Also looking after our physical health to the glory of God. Spending our money for the glory of God. Making the best use of our discretionary time for the glory of God. And of course, laboring for the glory of God among those who don't yet know him by sharing the gospel with them. Guys, Christianity is such an all-encompassing thing. But there's, not, there's not one area of our lives that's untouched by this directive to pursue God's glory. Brothers and sisters, God's glory, it should be the all-consuming passion of our lives. Is it the all-consuming passion of your life? Like, really? Don't just tell yourself what you want to hear. <laughs> Is God's glory really the all-consuming passion of your life? Like, if someone followed you around observing your, your every action and conversation and spending decision and, and use of time and, and a relationship and, and they could even read your mind to know your thought life. Would they really conclude that God's glory is your all-consuming passion? Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this connects in a pretty significant way to our church as well. God's glory isn't just something that we put on the front of the bulletins every Sunday at the beginning of our mission state. It's something that really is, or at least that we strive for it to be, the primary focus of our church. Um, as we make decisions about various aspects of our church's ministry, such as what priorities we're gonna focus on and how we're going to approach different things. We're not primarily asking ourselves, like, what do people want? Or what's going to attract, uh, attract the biggest crowd? That's, that's not our primary concern, people's preferences. Um, you know, I'll just say, this isn't Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Now, those of you who know me, you know that I, I love Dunkin' Donuts, right? I mean, I, I hit that place up every chance that I get. And I'll say, as a consumer, I am so glad that Dunkin' Donuts is consumer-driven in their approach to things. I am so glad because that, that consumer-driven mentality, that has led them to make some really great coffee, I think, uh, and offer that coffee at a pretty economical rate and uh, in a very 
pleasant atmosphere. And so I hope they continue to be very consumer-driven in their decision-making process and, and focus on me, the consumer. Makes for some good coffee. But this, of course, this isn't Dunkin' Donuts. And we're not called to be consumer-driven in our approach. And so we, we don't let people's preferences dictate our approach to things. Instead, our focus is on the glory of God. We want God to, to look down and be pleased with what we're doing. Both our goals and our methods. We're not primarily concerned about whether something works or whether we think it'll make our church grow bigger. We want to know, does it glorify God? Does every part of it glorify God? That's God's desire for our church. In fact, if you look at the storyline of the Bible, God's pursuit of glory centers on the church. The church is the very centerpiece of God's plan to get glory for himself in this world. Uh, listen to these words from John Calvin. The whole world is a theater for the display of the divine goodness, wisdom, justice, and power, but the church is the orchestra, as it were, the most conspicuous part of it. Isn't that good? The whole world is a theater for the display of God's glory. Right? That's why God created this world, to display His glory in that, that theater. But in that theater, the church is the orchestra. That's why Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 states, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's all about soli dea gloria. That's our calling. And that's our passion. Now, of course, let me say that we want to do all that we possibly can to help people feel welcomed here. Amen. I mean, we want them to know that they are loved and that we care for them and that we genuinely desire to minister to them. And in fact, I'll just say I'd like to see more of that. <laughs> uh, I would like to see more people intentionally putting conversations with folks they already know on hold so that they can intentionally seek out conversations with guests and, and with those who may, might not have somebody to talk to. Um, I think that, especially with COVID, it's just kind of made everything weird with relationships and up until now, a, a strict mask requirement and things like that. And I think, we, I think we're out of practice a little bit. I think we've gotten a little sloppy with that. And so I would like to just encourage folks to, to be doing that. To, I mean, you can, I understand, we all have people that we know and that we love talking to. And yet I would encourage you 
to put those conversations on hold and just seek out people that you don't know and initiate just a gen take a genuine interest in their lives. Maybe even invite them out to lunch after church. Maybe even put that in your personal budget. How about that? A line item specifically to taking people out to lunch after church. So just pray what the Lord would have you do there. And yet even as we make every effort to help people feel welcomed and loved and cared for in our church, hopefully we do that with the understanding that it all ultimately comes back to the glory of God. And as far as the overall design of the worship service goes, just know that me and the other leaders of our church aren't designing things around consumer preferences. Now, we certainly want the things that we do, obviously, to be clear and understandable and accessible and helpful to people. Amen to that. And yet, our heart and our passion is, at the end of the day, we just want to make much of God. As Romans 11.36 says, For from Him and through Him and to him are all things. And hopefully that's the effect of this series of messages on the five solas. Now, as I close this series, I believe Soli Deo Gloria is a wonderful note for us to end on. Because it reminds us that theology should always lead to doxology. And here's what I mean by that. Theology simply refers to our knowledge of God and of the truths that he's revealed, while doxology refers to our worship of God. And so our knowledge of God and his work of salvation, as we've seen it summarized so richly in the first four solas, should always lead to the worship of God and to a wholehearted, worshipful, exuberant, embrace of Soli Deo Gloria. Theology should always lead to doxology. And what theologian named John Stott once wrote, that there is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. And so we see that there's more than one way to have bad theology. Of course, you can have bad theology by openly embracing the wrong things, right? Things that are contrary to the Bible. But you can also have bad theology by professing to believe the right things, such as the first four solas, but not allowing those things to soak into your soul and to lift you into doxology into the worship of God. Truly good theology isn't just knowledge for the sake of knowledge, but rather knowledge for the sake of worship. Now before we move forward in our service, I'd like to give you an opportunity here to respond to the things that you've heard. Um, you'll notice 
on the sermon notes page of your bulletin, there is a section at the bottom labeled How I Need to Grow and Change. So I'll invite you to locate that and grab a pen. And if you didn't get a bulletin for whatever reason, that's okay. You can just do this in your head if you need to. But I'd like to invite you to spend a few moments thinking about how the Lord would have you respond to this message. Specifically, is there any area of your life that's not currently being lived solely Deo Gloria? To what degree is solely Deo Gloria your conscious focus in life? To what degree are you actually delighting in solely Deo Gloria? And what does that say about where you are spiritually? So how, by God's grace, do you need to grow and change? Uh, I'll give you a few moments to write something down, and then we'll move forward with our service.